time for another episode of Chelsea Reed's article for the first time to you all as a starter on the episode. <laughs> this one's titled, Historians Sue Biden for Illegally Withholding 16,000 JFK Assassination Files. What are they hiding? They're just in his attic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking guy. They're his personal JFK files. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, he was probably there. Like, he's old enough. He probably was, yeah. So, let's see what this article's about. The most expansive online directory of information on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, AFK for short, has sued the Biden administration and the National Archives in an attempt to make the government publicize all the documents not yet shared concerning the murder in 1963. Just as an aside, I find it kind of off-putting that they called it a murder. In my mind, like it's just strictly an assassination, which yes, I do get their interchangeable words, but it feels wrong to call it the JFK murder. In some cases, it's interchangeable, I guess. Is it? I feel like they're kind of different. Yeah, the real difference between an assassination and a murder is the fame of the person being killed. Yeah, I guess so. Or the wealth level. That's really it. Yeah, at that point, we're just like, uh, what's the word for it? Like, I don't know. Oh, we're just the plebs. We barely get murdered. We just kind of get off. Okay. Yeah, I've never heard it put that way either. I was busy reading it out loud, so I didn't process the information. Lawsuit was filed on Wednesday by the Mary Farrell foundation one year after president joe biden shared a memo delaying the release of the final 16,000 documents relating to the assassination slash murder nbc news reported by the way this article is from the independent.co.uk there's a picture of beyonce did she do the reporting beyonce i don't think yeah. so but i can't tell okay. you that for sure because i haven't gotten to that part <laughs> they, they put that at the top Yes, this is Beyonce. <laughs> oh, it's Gustav Killander. Kiel that's who wrote it. So that's unless Beyonce is just a pen pen name of Gustav. Gustav. <laughs> <laughs> so, the JFK Records Collection Act of 1992 was signed into law by President Bill Clinton. The law states that the documents had to be released before the 26th of October 2017, but the publication of the documents was postponed by Donald Trump, leaving the decision by with Mr. Biden. It's a holdup. Yeah, actually, after Trump lost the election, or sorry, what's the correct way he would have put it? Ah, just fuck it. After Trump lost the election, I'm surprised he didn't pull a ton of shit, like... Just say, yeah, release this stuff. I don't care anymore. That's true. Unless there wasn't anything of, like, importance. Also, he had the hiccup of he technically, he still thought he was president and wanted to maintain being president. So he didn't want to do anything. That's true. Anymore. And he may be back, I guess. Yeah. Let's not worry about that, though. Let's do the escapism that is conspiracy. Okay. So the foundation's president, Jefferson Morley, said that it's high time that the government got its act together and obeyed the spirit and the letter of the law. I like that spirit comes first. According to NBC News, this is about our history and our right to know. It's true though, we do deserve to know, even though it's, we don't live in the United States. Robert Kennedy Jr., son of the 35th president's brother, told the outlet that it was a momentous crime, a crime against American democracy and the American people have the right to know. Law requires the records to be released. It's bizarre. It's been almost 60 years since my uncle's death. What are they hiding? He asked. Majority of experts on the 22nd of November 1963 murder 
believe that the final trove of documents doesn't include clear evidence that others were behind the shooting alongside accused gunman Lee Harvey Oswald, Oswald, that the records could add more general information about the U.S. Cold War history. Former CIA agent Rolf, that's a name you don't hear anymore, Owen Larson, who has lectured about the assassination at Harvard, is critical of his former employer. He believes that the agency had contact with Oswald before the death of Mr. Kennedy and that the CIA covered it up. See, this is a much longer article than I anticipated. That's okay. I don't know if we had to go much further. One of the reasons that I've heard that makes a lot of sense to me is they won't um, release documents that have people who are still alive implicated in them. And I shouldn't say implicated, that's an incorrect term, who are at least um, written about or might have their names mentioned in um, documents. If it's Biden. In 2017, George Bush Sr., who was then the director of the CIA while JFK Mm. was uh, president, was still alive. From what I heard, the things that were not released likely had to do with George Bush Sr., who died in 2018. (laughs) So I don't know. Next time they come up, maybe they'll actually be released. And I'm just scanning this and basically sums up everything. Just... You know, you can make things wordy if you want, if you need to hit a certain amount of of word counts in a... We've all written those essays. Yeah, exactly. That's the opener. And with that, we've all heard about it for the very first time. Yes. And in fact, this JFK character that was murdered, or I did not know that. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you for that. Let's get on to this episode. From the unexplained to the mundane... Come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. Now with a different amount of subliminal messaging, because we don't legally need to tell you if it's more or less subliminal messaging, just that it's changed. We are your liability absolved hosts, Taylor and Chelsea, and today we look at what is known as an old classic in the conspiracy community. Chelsea, I I think that's an apt way to put it, right? Yeah, I would say so. One that I think most people just kind of, you've heard it, but you just kind of vaguely know what's going on with it or what happened with it. I think I'm done alluding to it. Today, we will be talking about the Philadelphia Experiment, which you likely saw in the title of this episode. So no reason to beat around the bush. This has a winding path that you're probably not going to expect some of the things that come up, but just stick with us. I promise it all does make sense in the long run. I'll try. Now, this all starts with a character by the name of Morris K. Jessup. Really outside of this, he does not come up a lot in really anything. He was kind of considered one of the most, this is a quote I found on him, probably the most original extraterrestrial hypothesizer of the 1950s. He was basically Eric Von Daniken and Zachariah Stidgen before they became who they were. Basically the original ancient alien hypothesis guy. Okay, I'm intrigued. He had both training in astronomy and archaeology and working experience in both. Although the educational background wasn't there, he did end up going to archaeological expeditions in Yucatan and Peru in the 1920s. And he also documented an expedition to Cuzco he took part in 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 19. Why this man became so notorious and involved with this story is because he wrote a book in 1955 called The Case for the UFO. In it, he writes a lot of things, nothing to do with the Philadelphia experiment at all. It's mostly that he just says that there are UFOs out there and they represent a mysterious subject worthy of further study. And he speculates that UFOs were exploratory crafts of solid and nebulous character. 
He also linked ancient monuments with prehistoric super science, probably close to, if not the first person to write about this, with Eric von Daniken coming out with Chariot of the Gods in 68. This came out 13 years before that. Wow, a pioneer, truly. So he wrote this book, it got published, and then out of nowhere, Jessup starts getting letters in the mail from somebody who's read the book, calling himself Carlos Miguel Allende. The first known letter showed up in 1955 and it warned Jessup not to investigate the levitation of unidentified flying objects. Allende put forward a story of dangerous science based on unpublished theories by Albert Einstein and he further claimed a scientist named Franklin Reno put these theories into practice in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in October of 1943. Allende claimed to have witnessed this experiment while serving aboard the SS Andrew Furiseth. What happened was to the SS Eldridge, which I always love the name of. It just fully, for what's going to happen, reminds me of like HP Lovecraft, which is really? commonly known as Eldridge Horror. Oh. And it's the SS Eldridge, which is a real ship. Okay, I was just about to say, and this was a real ship, right? We can prove it's it. It's a real ship, yes. There's documents about this ship everywhere. Interesting. That's the ship that was involved, all ships. It could have been the Titanic. He says that the SS Elridge was a destroyer escort that was successfully made invisible, but the ship inexplicably teleported itself to Norfolk, Virginia for several minutes and then reappeared in the Philadelphia shipyard. The ship's crew was supposed to have suffered various side effects, including insanity, intangibility, and being frozen in place. Because you do these experiments on a ship, a naval ship, fully crewed with officers, not on just an empty ship. So, yeah. Does he say why they do it with a ship full of officers? They do not, no. Okay, because just logically thinking, you wouldn't think that that's... That's not what you start with. Yeah. <laughs> you start with, like, a dinghy and then work up from there. Yeah, like, something that doesn't have, like, humans if you don't know what you're working with. Or you just say, fuck it, which is obviously what they did. <laughs> fuck it, we're doing it live. <laughs> I'm ready now. I'm not waiting for this ship to have no people on it. And the one right next to it's not going to work. Yeah, and you got to think, this is this is 43. There's only a couple years of war left. You got to get this stuff going yeah, if it's going to exactly. get into the war. No time to wait. There are so many different stories and rumors as to what happened. In total, Allende sent, well, I shouldn't say Allende. The man calling himself Allende sends 50 letters to Jessup over the course of his correspondence. In some of them, he's mentioning this. In several, he says that he has worked closely with Albert Einstein. He explains the craziness of the unified field theory, which he's working with, and really the basis behind everything that's happening here in his mind. And Allende named other crew members with whom he served aboard the Andrew Furiseth, the ship he was on. And he claimed to know the fate of some of the crew members of the Eldridge after the experiment, including one who he witnessed. He went into a bar, he saw a bar fight, and then this person just disappeared in the middle of a bar fight. Like just And this is a person that was on on the Eldridge and survived. <laughs> oh, they just continue yeah. to disappear after this. Okay. Yeah, and like you'll hear stories of um the ship came back and this person lost their entire mind. Not all the crew was on board. Some people were fused to the ship, like hmm. lower half would no longer be there and they'd be stuck between floors. That would suck. Yeah. And then others are suffering with spontaneous disappearing. Yeah, just out of nowhere later on. Although Allende claimed to have observed the experiment while on the Andrew Furiseth, he provided absolutely no information to substantiate this claim or any way of linking the experiment with Einstein's unified field theory, which he talks about a lot. Yeah, that's an interesting turn. Uh, well, not turn. 
just elation. That would be weird to receive that letter in the mail out of nowhere. Like, oh, I just published this book. Yeah, it was a UFO book, but it just says, yeah, by the way, don't look too much into this. This is what happened on this Philadelphia experiment. I was going to say that. that. Isn't that such a weird way to bring it up? Like, don't look into the levitation with UFOs because of the USS Eldred. Like, they tried to use this and it did this to this ship. Like, yeah. (laughs) So don't look into UFOs and how they move. Okay. Jessup does, in fact, respond to this guy. And he says, like, I need further evidence to corroborate this. He ends up getting, obviously, more letters after that. Eventually, this guy comes out and he says, yeah, Carlos Miguel Allende is a pseudonym that I write under. My real name is Carl M. Allen. It's interesting that he went with such a more complex pen name. He went with a Spanish version of his exact damn name. Like, <laughs> Allende is spelled A L L E N. Carlos M. Ayen. <laughs> Anyways, Alan says that he could not provide the details for which Jessup was asking, but he implied that he might be able to recall it by some sort of means of hypnosis. Anyways, Jessup keeps getting these letters and he's like, whatever, this guy's kind of fucked in the head. I'm not believing anything. And he just stops responding to these letters he's getting. Which, in my mind, I would just hope that's the end of it. And this is 1955. In 1957, Jessup gets a call from the Office of Naval Research. Kind of out of nowhere, kind of a weird thing for somebody who's never been involved with the Navy to be uh, called up on. Yeah. They say, in 1956, we received an anonymous package in the mail, and it contained a copy of your book, The Case for the UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects. And it is covered in handwritten notes, like everywhere. It's written in three different colors of pen, and it appears to be conversations between three different people who've been like passing this book around and they appear to be discussing propulsion of flying saucers aliens alien races and the express concern that jessup was too close to discovering their technology so they say hey can you come in like we just want to talk to you about this so jessup goes in he sees the annotations in this book and he's like oh fuck i've been getting letters from this guy for years it's the same guy (laughs) and he's written in three different colors of pen To make it look like he's having conversations (laughs) with people. But it's one guy's handwriting. Carlos. So Jessup saw the annotations and said, these are from the guy who keeps sending me letters. And the two officers from the ONR, Captain Sidney Sherby and Captain George W. Hoover, took a personal interest in the matter. Hoover later explained that his duties as special projects officer required him to investigate many publications and that he ultimately found nothing of substance to the alleged invisibility experiment. Like they looked into this because it was brought up in that book and apparently they're supposed to look into this stuff, I guess. It seems kind of weird that they are drawing an interest to it, but they might just, because you know, Know, bloated cold war budget look into everything yeah. you get it could have also raised a red flag or something like that maybe i don't know i don't know maybe yeah it's alleging things about the navy so look into it yeah like at the very least like make the one phone call to be like hey you wrote this book what does this mean <laughs> that's where i would start because it was an anonymous package so yeah. like, i guess that's where he started and it actually proved to be the right way to go too because he could tell him straight up who it was <laughs> So one of these guys goes and talks to a friend at a manufacturing company called Vero Manufacturing Corporation. It's in Garland, Texas. And the friend's name is Austin Stanton. And Stanton gets super interested. They end up making a 127 copy run of this book with the annotations. And they actually sold it. So there are actually a bunch of copies of this book out there with the annotations in it. Okay. What are the annotations? It's just all the writing he wrote in the margins in the three different colors of ink. And they identify them as Mr. A, Mr. B, 
and Jemmy, J-E-M-I, as the characters. But they're the same writer. That's so weird. I wonder what he was writing. But, like, that's where it ends. Like, they look into it. Like, I don't know why they decided to make copies of this book. Apparently, he did find it interesting enough that we should do this. Not enough to actually make any sort of profit on it. And um, that's really the end of the ONR Office of Naval Research investigation into it. Fair enough. From there, not a lot ever happens with Jessup again. Well, it's a bad way to put it. Jessup attempted to make a living writing books on the subject of UFOs, but his follow-up books didn't sell well. Interesting. And eventually his publisher rejected several other manuscripts. Just like, look, there's no point in doing this anymore. In 1958, his wife left him. He then traveled to New York, where he saw some friends, and they said he was being somewhat unstable. And then he returned to Florida, and on April 20th, 1959, he was found dead in his car. He had committed suicide. Oh no. Sad. Yeah, and that's literally the basis for the Philadelphia Philadelphia experiment. The attempt to turn a naval warship invisible, which then accidentally teleported it to another location and back and messed with the crew. And that's the first mention of the Philadelphia experiment ever. Yes, ever. Other than when it actually happened. Yes. Robert Gorman, a journalist for a magazine called Fate in 1980, he decided to look into this Carl Allen character and he said, who is this? He realized when he started looking into it that Carl Allen lived in New Kensington, Pennsylvania, where Robert Gorman also lived. So he's like, oh, maybe I should go talk to this guy. And then it turns out his parents were actually family friends with his parents. So he's just like, I'm just going to go talk to them. (laughs) <laughs> like, really weird coincidence. No kidding, what are the odds? It turns out Carl Allen has a history of psychiatric illness, and he may have fabricated the primary story of the experiment as a result of this mental illness. That's what Gorman found. After he talked to the parents, they said he was a creative and imaginative loner, sending bizarre writings and claims around the world. He does have his own Wikipedia page. Carl Allen was born May 31st, 1925 in Springdale, Pennsylvania. The eldest of five children. His family described him as as brilliant in school with a fantastic mind, but also a person who never held any particular job for long and was a drifter. He was also known as a master leg puller pulling pranks on people or to get out of work in general. In 1942, he joined the U.S. Marine Corps. So that part is true. He was part of the Marines at that time, but was discharged less than a year later. Right after that, he enlisted with the United States Merchant Marine, at first serving in the SS Andrew Furiseth, so he was on that ship, and then many other ships until 1952 when he left service. During his lifetime, he would use several aliases, which did include Carlos Miguel Allende, (laughs) Senor Professor, and Colonel Carlos Miguel Cristofero Allende. (laughs) This guy was not creative. I don't know, I would call that pretty creative. (laughs) (laughs) The most long titles and names. But he also, he just wrote letters to random people who were fairly big at the time. One to Dr. Carl Murdett Ellenstein, which I didn't look up what he did. But he also wrote to Werner von Braun. (laughs) What? What did he say to Werner? Yeah, I don't know. That's the only part on this page. And that's his background. His credibility isn't holding up well based on that information. And that's the story. These are the characters involved and how it goes. From there, some Hollywood execs get a hold of the few people that research this, their books. And they say, oh, this shit would make a good movie. So in 1984, a movie based on this whole weird situation with Allende's story was turned into a movie. They ran with it. Funny enough, 
Not for anybody but Chelsea, I mean, probably. The original script was written by John Carpenter. Really? Yeah. And he described it as a great shaggy dog story. Absolute crap, but what a great story. Yeah, that sounds like something John Carpenter would do. Apparently the script then went through like nine rewrites. He doesn't even get a writer's credit in the movie. Really? Yeah, and it was directed by Stuart Raphael. There were no big names in it. Like the lead actor credit is to a Michael Perry, and I have no idea who that is. Okay. Maybe he didn't want his name on it. No, you know what? It's just, he got paid for it, whatever. And on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 50%. Like, exactly 50%. So it's like the blandest movie, apparently. Okay. In 1990, a man by the name of Al Bielik, he goes and sees this movie. And he says, oh shit, it's all coming back to me now. So he believes that seeing this movie opened up some missing memories that have been forced out of his mind. And he has this tale to tell. So Al Bielik was born in 1927. He joined the Navy to help fight the Nazis. According to Bielik, he was a naval officer who was serving on the USS Eldridge in 1943. On August 13th, 1943, Bielik and his brother were on this ship when this experiment happened. And they said, shit, everything's going bad. And he's there with his brother. And they said, we got to jump off this thing. So they do. And they just keep falling and falling and falling. And eventually they land in the year 2137. Oh my god. How he knows it's the year 2137, I don't know. He probably fell on a calendar. I was just gonna say that. Calendars are big in the year 2137. They are everywhere. No, everyone knows that when you're time traveling, you see like the calendar. Oh yeah, you do. The clock's going forward really fast. Yeah, Yeah. or the clock's going forward. And so they're jumping ship figuratively and literally as the experiment's happening, which is how they time travel. Yes, my other theory is that those um, calendar gift shops that jump up in like November, December, they become 98% of the economy in the future. So much so that there's just calendars everywhere yeah probably not this timeline but a timeline that did happen specifically 2137 yeah huge that year (laughs) so they're everywhere so just he fell and like you couldn't even land in the water there were too many calendars (laughs) so while in 2137 bielik was treated for radiation injuries through a highly advanced series of treatments that relied on vibration and light and what's more the entertainment at the hospital was solely educational and news program the only choice for tv in the entire world apparently not just you know the shitty tv that you get at the hospital he also discovered that geographical shifts had transformed the globe the coastlines of every continent had changed dramatically florida had disappeared except for the panhandle not again the great lakes were just one greatest lake and atlanta was three miles from the atlantic ocean Bielik said that the united states infrastructure had been completely destroyed as well and the central government was a total thing of the past both canada and the u.s were gone ruled over with a kind of locally enforced martial law And it was around 2005, the US and Europe had banded together to fight off the combined threat of China and Russia, resulting with a war that killed billions of people and the total population of the world was only 300 billion and essentially ruined the world's government. From there, Bielik says that he was sent forward to the year 2749. (laughs) Probably this time, the inevitable collapse of the calendar industry had happened. However, it had resurged within those next 600 years. And again, just calendars everywhere because time is cyclical. 
And he stayed there for two years before being transported back to the year 2137 to pick up his brother. In 2749, the world had adapted the technology to build mobile floating cities. Government of any kind was non-existent, and everything was run by AI called the Synthetic Intelligent Computer System that worked telepathically. He's describing the Jetsons. Yes. <laughs> I've been waiting for that. Bielik also stated that there were no wars in the year 2749, which actually makes the year 2137 feel kind of shitty that he specifically didn't state that about it. Yeah. Oh boy, were there wars. <laughs> And he said there were no wars in 2749 because they were impossible. There were no militaries or soldiers or navy or air force, so any conflict between countries was irrelevant. Bielik reported that no one needed money in 2749, basically making it a socialist utopia or a communist utopia. There's just no need to have it. Everyone had their own credits, which allowed them to buy everything they wanted. And sorry, I need to take that last statement back because it sounds like they had credits, which is just money in a different form. <laughs> Yeah, that's not what they had. So at this point, he gets sent back from 2749 to 2137 to go get his brother. And from there, they're transported back to 1984. Why 1984? They need to meet Dr. John von Neumann, who convinces the two men to travel back to their original time and stop the Philadelphia experiment from ever happening. And these two men agree and they go back, and the Philadelphia experiment actually never happened in this timeline. Uh, Albiolixon? Yeah, it happened in his original timeline, but not ours, because he went back in time and stopped it. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I'm not following his train of thought. After his time in the Navy, Bielik completed his education in electronics. Soon, though, he found himself contracted out to various military contractors who slowly took the young electronics whiz into their confidence. They revealed to him that the U.S. military was actively involved in adapting alien technology and forwarding research on psychic operations. And soon is recruited for another project that I'm going to leave a secret for now. Though Bielik was working jobs in California, his importance at this other secret project was so great that he was given access to the super secret network of high-speed trains running under the entire country of the U.S. This allowed him to work his normal jobs during business hours and then moonlight in uh, another location. Are these underground trains on our timeline? Yes, they are. They are, okay. So Bielik goes public with this extraordinary story. There's a bit more. I'm just going to skip past it because it has a lot more to do with your episode, Chelsea. I always love it when they say someone goes public with something. Like, if only I have a secret that I was like, should I go public or should I not go public? Then if I decided to go public... You probably have as good of stories as these guys to go public with. You just need to be a better liar. I need, like, a way better name, first of all. <laughs> like, where would I go public to? Do I write a letter to... I think you gotta find a reporter. Like, I bet you can go to Huffington Post, Vox... I'm, I'm sure there's a few YouTubers you go public with. I write a letter to Tom DeLong. Actually, no, sorry. You know who you go public with? George Norrie. That guy... Oh, he sucks. ...is <laughs> very easy to convince on things. It's true, but I think... And he has a very big following with the 70+. plus. I just love it when they say go public, and, like, I wouldn't even know someone who's not a public, like, in the public eye, like, where you would go public to. It's just a, a thought I had. It has nothing to do with anything, really. Fair enough. I get that. It's not like declaring bankruptcy where you just yell it in the air. Yeah, I declare it. I can't yell that out loud, though. You tried to trick me. Because <laughs> you can't declare it public. Yeah, tried to trick me. I almost declared it public. 
Bila goes public with this information in the 90s. Apparently the government disavowed him. They didn't even do him the dignity of calling him a crazy kook. Bila believes he has not been harmed or stopped from talking about this situation because his time traveling experience locked him into this timeline and everything he's talking about happens on different timelines. So somehow by being here today, he among others in the program served to balance the effects they produced from prior time traveling experiments. So he's okay to talk about this. Mm. Bielik died on October 10th, 2011 in Guadalajara, Mexico. He was 84 at the time and was buried at a local cemetery. Al Bielik's birth certificate is dated March 31st, 1927. Whether he was born at that time or not depends on how much of Al's story you're willing to believe. He also says that his real identity was a guy by the name of Edward Cameron, son of a career naval officer, and that he had been regressed back in time to that of a nine-month-old baby in California in December of 1927 when he was raised as Al Bielik by Arthur E. and Albertina Bielik. That's a super weird twist. And that's basically because he came to that new timeline, he had to assume an identity that existed. I've never heard of anyone being regressed back to a different baby that was not them as a baby. Yeah. It's regressing his friend. That memory just happened to come out. I thought it would be important to talk about because that, <laughs> that is a story. That is important information. I'm going to finish. I say finish. We still have a bit of episode to go, but this is the last thing we're really going to talk about. This is a, sci a paper written by one Jacques Vallée in 1994. It was published in the Society for Scientific Exploration. It's called The Anatomy of a Hoax. The Philadelphia experiment 50 years later. Basically, he had written an article in 1991, basically said this thing didn't happen. And then somebody reached out to him and said, no, something actually did happen. Because these ships do exist. We know where they were. They weren't in Philadelphia at the time. But he basically said, and this is on par with exactly what the Office of Naval Research has on their page as to what people are actually saying happened. And I'm just going to pull it right from the website's page. This is a an information sheet on the Philadelphia Experiment published September 8th, 1996 on the history.navy.mil website. Personnel at the 4th Naval District believe that the questions surrounding the so-called Philadelphia Experiment arise from quite routine research which occurred during World War II at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Until recently, it was believed that the foundation of the apocryphal stories arose from degaussing experiments which have the effect of making a ship undetectable or invisible to magnetic mines and torpedoes. So basically demagnetize it so that these ships can't be hit by mines that are everywhere in the ocean at that time, or torpedoes being shot from U-boats. Another likely genesis of bizarre stories about levitation, teleportation, and effects on human crew members might be attributed to experiments with the generating plants of a destroyer, the USS Timmerman. In the 1950s, this ship was part of the experiment to test the effects of a small high-frequency generator providing 1,000 hertz instead of the standard 400 hertz. Higher-frequency generator produced corona discharges and other well-known phenomena associated with high frequency generators. None of the crew suffered effects from the experiment, except the ones who were, you know, grafted into the ship, but they're, they don't care about them. But yeah, Jacques Vallée gets information from somebody who says they were on the ship at this time, and they were basically just doing experiments to make demagnetized ships so that they could not be hit by magnetic mines, which basically are in the ocean. They're big magnets. If your ship comes near it, it moves the mine over, hits it, and explodes. 
because they don't have anything more advanced than that at that time. Okay. This is the conclusion that Jacques Vallée comes to in his article. Few tasks are as important in the field of paranormal investigation as the detection and elimination of hoaxes. An area of research that does not police itself and eventually policed by others with utterly devastating consequences as recent examples of fraud and academic research have shown. Popular ufology, which thrives on rumors, poorly investigated reports, shoddy scholarships, and outright fraud to the detriment of these genuine facts that are potentially relevant to science provide a long history of colorful hoaxes that have come to define the field in the mind of general public and have tainted it with a negative image of the view of scientists and educated laymen. The problem with hoaxes is that they are charming, tantalizing, entertaining, and often correspond to what we would like to be true as opposed to what is actually true. We have seen that the Philadelphia experiment had all of these characteristics. This hoax, which should have died a long time ago under the combined efforts of several researchers, is an example of a story that simply refuses to die. It is surrounded with such an aura of mystery that it has continued to be successfully exploited. Like some other exhausted gold mines in the hills of Colorado, which were drained of every ounce of metal in the 19th century, yet revived periodically in the offering circulars of unscrupulous underwriters as penny stock mining companies with new fancy names. Certain UFO stories always find gullible new investors. Even in 1993, the tale of the disappearance of the DE-173 has lost none of its peculiar charm. Hoaxes have been defined as deliberately concocted truths made to masquerade as facts. In recent theoretical articles on hoaxes, Marcello Truzzi notes that there has been little deductive efforts in social science specifically to describe or explain hoaxes. He points out that according to Curtis McDougall, a hoax's success is the result of two sets of psychological forces acting within the victim. Under the rubric of why we don't disbelieve, McDougall lists ignorance, superstition, suggestion, and prestige. Under the incentive to believe, he lists financial gain, vanity, chauvinism, prejudice, pet theories, the thirst of thrills, and cultural climate. We have seen that such factors were indeed at work in the infrastructure of the present story. McDougall also remarked when a hoax achieves the longevity to qualify for classification as either myth or legend, hope of stopping it almost may be abandoned. After 50 years, we may well have reached that point in the matter of the Philadelphia experiment. I think that's well put. Yeah, I really like it. He also lists six tentative guidelines for avoiding falling for things like the Philadelphia experiment in the future, which I'm just going to quickly go over. Yeah, run through those, please. I'm very interested on how not to fall for hoaxes because I'm unsure of how many I've actually fallen for in real life. I really like Jacques Vallée. I find him a very credible source. And I like him too. A smart individual. So I feel like he's somebody who should actually listen to. First off, disregard self-described experts. Many of the pundits of ufology keep their notoriety alive by pandering to each other and small cohorts of a few hundred readers of their magazines, forming a tiny hardcore. There are very few scientifically trained individuals within this group, where mutual admiration is the rule and the sociology of the field is such that reinforcement of the dominant extraterrestrial hypothesis is more highly rewarded than exposing hoaxes bringing novel knowledge or highlighting contradictions. If you want an example of that, please go back and listen to our David Wilcock episodes and how full of <laughs> shit that guy is on his research. Good episodes, good episodes. Great episodes. I'm going to go back what and listen to What a whirlwind of episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, disregard the media. Television reports of UFO events are geared to ratings, not knowledge. Number three, look for logical flaws. 
They are often flagged by perilous and loaded terms, therefore, most of the mistakes that have been made in ufology over the last 50 years have resulted from a simple fallacy based on the misuse of a simple word. Examples. Something crashed at Roswell. True. It was obviously covered up by the U.S. Air Force. True. Therefore, it has to have been flying saucer. False deduction. Doesn't have to have been a UFO. That's just one answer. Well, he is using reasoning. <laughs> case in point, he uses it here. In the present case, a destroyer left its place in the harbor under highly secretive circumstances. True. And moved to another location in an impossible time. True, given the witness's limited knowledge of the facts. Therefore, it must have been subject to artificial invisibility, dematerialization, or time travel. False deduction. There are other things. It turns out that the Navy has secret channels through the U.S. to move faster than things should. Which I didn't get to in this episode, but that's part of the story. I just wanted to keep this as tight as I could of an episode. Item 4. Identify and remove irrelevant drama. The remarkable feature of the present hoax is that the principal actor, Carl Allen, was only peripherally involved in the events he sensationalized and had no direct knowledge of the equipment he described. Yet he managed to create the entire myth almost single-handedly. He originated the drama of Jessup's involvement, the ONR study, and excitement of his own elusiveness. None of these facts had anything to do with the actual events in Philadelphia, and in the same vein, Bill Moore amplifies the spurious dramatization of the tavern brawl. A lot of this stuff is secondhand sources, is what he's saying. Hmm. 5. Discover and test independent sources of information. Are there witnesses? Hundreds of people work around harbors. Surely some of them, somebody, has to remember the event. It's true. And 6. Disregard any claim of secrecy. Some of the facts surrounding the subject of UFOs are classified, if only because the objects represent spurious signals that trigger classified sensors. There may well be a massive cover-up of relevant data, as ufologists claim, but most of the secrecy around stories like the present one exists only in the minds of those who seek to enhance the thrill of the chase or live their own romantic myth as intrepid investigators of the unknown. And I think this is a great paragraph to finish off with just because it's in the same article it leads very well into our next episode today most students of ufology are in agreement that the philadelphia experiment hoax which rested on very flimsy data to begin with should have died a long time ago it did not even involve any clear indication that might be directly relevant to ufology since none of the witnesses described unusual objects in the sky or unusual beings the case should have died a peaceful death in the 60s yet it has survived and thrived in a peculiar niche of the paranormal to this day after a ufo lecture or during a talk show it is a common experience to have members of the audience eagerly raise the question what about the philadelphia experiment and the whole mystery is now rebounding in a new form through the montauk project oh that was a perfect paragraph to leave it off on and with that we are going to end this episode if that last paragraph has kept you intrigued stay tuned for the next episode chelsea do you have anything you want to say yeah so it got me to thinking i like what jacques valley had to say i had no idea about a lot of things that you said in this episode about the philadelphia experiment and somehow i did think that there were government documents saying that something did happen there but apparently it did not something did if you actually look at the records the boat was not in philadelphia it was somewhere yeah. else like you can yeah. find those records yeah i recall that i didn't find it really that pertinent to get into just because i really wanted to focus a lot on the jacques valet article yeah it's a great article like i read a lot of it you would think it's 25 pages long so there's a lot more if you want to go read it by all means it's free online go take a look at it 
Great artist. He was heated up about the Philadelphia experiment. Well, Jacques Vallée actually wants to figure out what's going on with shit. And he hates the fact that so much time is wasted on spurious claims. And he brings up a good point. No one actually in the shipyard actually came forward. It was all people were like, yeah, I remember being on that ship. When really, especially in Philadelphia, like you can't get that far away from land in Philadelphia. And then just the last thing I wanted to say was when you said that there's people embedded into the the metal on the ship when it moved. It got me to thinking like, where is this ship today with human body parts like embedded into the metal? And it was sold to Greece in January 1951. And apparently it doesn't say anything about where it is today. It just ends with being sold to Greece. It's decommissioned. Where is it? Like, did they take it apart for parts? Yeah, it basically got recycled. Oh, okay. So somewhere out there. I can't remember where I read it, but it has been decommissioned. It's basically just been recycled. And or it's been exploded to make a coral reef somewhere. Sorry, I didn't look that far into that part of it. That's fine. Because wherever it is and wherever those parts are that had humans embedded into the parts of the mast. And not the mast, but fancy ship words where human parts were embedded into. There's somewhere. Um, somewhere and only Greece knows. Yeah, it was sold as scrap to the Piraeus-based firm V&J Scrap Metal Trading Limited in 1999, November 11th. So it's somewhere. It's scrap is somewhere, yes. Yeah. And a little part of the USS Eldridge lives in all ships built after that. Good, and probably some people, if the story's true. And that's all I had. Okay, well, with that, then, I think we can finish off this episode which will move nicely into the next episode especially if you're listening live if not thank you all for listening and we will see you next week thank you for listening to journey to the fringe if you have liked what you have listened to please like share subscribe or follow depending on what venue you are listening to us through also please if possible leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms should you wish to interact with us please check us out on your social media of choice i bet you we are there and if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible either way please send us an email at journey to the fringe at gmail.com for now i'll see you in the next episode <laughs>